we saw early on, here's a market full of people who have no choice, which is why they're using fuel oil. And if we could offer them an alternative, especially one as attractive as geothermal that does heating and cooling and it's electric and they'd save money and like all these things, why wouldn't they do it, right? It just, it seemed like such a great value proposition for the customer. I do think 100% of furnaces and boilers will be replaced with heat pumps. And I think this will happen sooner than we think it will. In the same way that it would have been hard to imagine 10 years ago how much progress electric vehicles would have already made by now. Welcome to Scaling Climate Tech. I am your host, Florian, and I am thrilled to welcome you to this brand new podcast, where we meet with the founders building the technologies to get us to net zero. We live in the defining decade for climate. We have until 2030 to halve our emissions. In Scaling Climate Tech, we will understand how these incredible climate technologies work and if and how they can replace fossil solutions, not over the next century, but in the next 10 years. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we are having a discussion with Katie Hannon, co-founder and president of Dandelion Energy. Dandelion Energy is the leader in home geothermal solutions. They install heating and cooling heat pumps in the US. Geothermal heat pumps or ground source heat pumps are highly effective solutions to electrify space heating and shift away from the use of natural gas or fuel oil in buildings. This is truly a massive challenge. Energy use in buildings is responsible for 20% of emissions globally and up to 40% the US, with most of that energy going to space heating. Dandelion Energy was created in 2017 and has installed over 1,000 geothermal systems to date. With $30 million in fresh Series B funding, they now plan on scaling to 1,000 more homes to electrify. Let's get started. Hello, Kathy. Welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm super happy to have you, uh, have you here today, Kathy. Could you start by um, introducing yourself? My name is Kathy Hanoon, and I'm the co-founder and president at Dandelion Energy. We are a home geothermal company, so we do geothermal heating and cooling for residences. Super exciting. So we'll talk about building decarbonization today. We'll talk about heat pumps, of course. We'll talk about other ways to heat your home, current ways and, and future ways, and see how uh, heat pumps can be a way to decarbonize buildings. So we'll touch upon all those topics, and we'll also touch upon you know, how you got to Dandelion Energy from your past projects and your past academic experience. Maybe starting from there, could you tell us a bit more about you? Where did you grow up? And if you had any early interest on climate, or if this is something that came out later down? I grew up in New Hampshire. And I did have early interest in the environment. I don't know if I would have called it climate because I think the conversation when I was growing up, it wasn't as focused on climate change. There were a lot of different environmental issues people were worried about, like the ozone hole and acid rain and you know stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, over time, it's become really dominated by climate. But yeah, I would say that from a young age, I've been really concerned about those topics. And I don't know why, like, I cannot tell you why it is that those are the topics that have really resonated with me, but what they were. 
Were you a lot of, I don't know you, I'm sure very well, but were you a lot outside in the, in the parks, mm -hmm. in nature, or is that maybe where connection grew or in the early age? Probably. Certainly I was outside all the time. And, um, you know, New Hampshire is special because you really get, you know, the winter is so snowy and so cold and the spring, it's like such the classic spring with tulips and snow melting and like it comes at the same time each year at least it used to now it's changed and then you know the seasons each have their like very special timing that's it's such a part of your life in new hampshire in a way that it isn't at all in the bay area and it's kind of almost a cliche people always complain we don't have seasons you know which is true but i was outside a lot and it was basically the thing to do in new hampshire was to do things outside Okay, because then after that, you moved to Stanford, so in the, in the Bay Area. And as you said, you know, there's no winter in the Bay Area. It's very similar throughout the year. And so you moved for civil engineering and computer science, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. Did you know what you wanted to do back then? Or it was more intellectual interest in these topics and, and still figuring out uh, uh, where you wanted to work into? I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I just knew I really liked science. And I think I've always really liked trying to do projects or trying to like implement things. So I guess it's not shocking in retrospect that I gravitated towards engineering. But when I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of examples of engineers in my life. So I didn't really know what being an engineer entailed. So I would never have predicted that I would choose to study engineering because I really didn't know what that even meant. But at Stanford, it's such an engineering and science centric school that it was It became clear to me just looking at the course catalog and seeing what I was interested in. I actually decided I want to major in civil engineering, which I never would have predicted for myself. I'm a civil engineer as well, and, and that's not something I thought I would I would lean towards to initially. So I can relate yeah. there. <laughs> and then you went to computer science. That also because you know Stanford, the Bay Area, there is this this common aspiration and and culture of computer science everywhere that that drew you in, in this area. I took my first computer science classes at Stanford just because they were very popular and well-known classes. And then I didn't actually do my master's in computer science until I was working at Google after I graduated. But Google had a perk back then. I don't know if they still have it where they would pay for you to go to school if your school had to do with whatever it was that your job was. And my job at that time was customer support for AdSense, which was like their ad product for publishers. But I figured that no matter what your job was, you could always make an argument that computer science was relevant because it was Google. And really, it was like mostly for them. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, to be very honest, it was like partly because I knew I could get them to pay for it because it was relevant to my job, even though my job was customer support. And partly because I knew it would definitely be useful to my career no matter what I did, even though I still didn't know what I wanted to do to know computer science. I ended up applying for the master's degree at Stanford, which was very much a reach, but they accepted me, which once I had gotten into that program, I was like, oh, well, if I have this opportunity, I have to try. So then for the next many years, I was balancing working on this master's degree with working full-time, which was a lot. But I eventually graduated 
I can imagine. And then you can't say no to Stanford computer science, of course. Um, I know. <laughs> so you said you're at Google. You started in customer support, and then you moved to Google X after your master's. During during my master's, so I got into the master's, and somebody I knew who was working at Google X, they just I don't know. We must have been talking, and they they learned that I was in this computer science master's program. And they thought that, wow, you might be a really good fit for X because we're looking for sort of an entry-level person who has some technical background but can help us with some marketing stuff. And you should interview. And so even when I had just barely started this master's degree, it already did help my career because it gave me this opportunity to interview for a position at X, which I then ended up getting. And so I switched into Google X, which was really exciting. I think it was maybe 2012. So it was quite early. And um, it was definitely a really interesting place to be just to look at what is the frontier of innovation as Google sees it? Mm -hmm. And what are the different sort of industries they're thinking about, right? Right. And I I was especially interested in self-driving car and thinking about if that could have some energy implications, even though that wasn't the primary focus, but that's how I started at X. Okay. And so Google X, and correct me if I'm not presenting this right, it's this subsidiary of, of Alphabet, so Google before, that is launching some mood shots, basically. So really disruptive technology, disruptive ideas that can potentially fail. And if they don't fail, they can really change the way we do driving, the way we do energy, the whole sector of the economy. And as you say, in 2012, there was a lot of talk around autonomous cars, and there was, there was even before Waymo, imagine, uh, came out. Mm-hmm. That was really the, the early days of the autonomous driving projects. And so when you're at X, can you give us a bit of a view of how it works inside? Do you work on a lot of projects, or do you choose one idea do you, do you actually focus on? Because I imagine there, there's a flurry of ideas out there. Some are crazy, some are uh, more or less reachable. How do you prioritize or think of all those those ideas at Google X? It really changed over my time there. But at the very beginning, I was sort of a marketing resource for any of the projects to use as um, marketing was needed. And there wasn't that much marketing needed because at that time, X was mostly confidential. So my friends all made fun of me because they were like, you're doing marketing for a top secret organization. Like your job sounds very easy, you know, which I mean, we did have a lot to do. Even back then we had the announcement of Google Glass, which again is a good reminder of what era that was at X. We had the launch of Loon, the balloon internet project in New Zealand. And so I would just sort of help out where there was a need. But then over time, I switched out of marketing and into a product role And my role was specifically to work on the early stage projects team that comes up with what should X be looking at next? What new projects should X be prioritizing? And the way we would do it is there were three criteria. One was what's the scale of the opportunity or like how much impact could this have if if it worked? Two is, is it primarily a technology project? So for example, there are some great ideas that have nothing to do with technology. It's like this policy should be put in place or whatever it is. And X knew that's not, that's not what they do. (laughs) It's like, it's technology. And then the third one was, 
how unique, I guess, is that approach, right? We don't want to be doing the same work that's being done elsewhere. We want to really be doing things in a new way, ideally a way that's uniquely suited to X's unique position in the world. And I guess another way of saying it is like, is it the right opportunity for X? So those were our criteria. And then we would essentially just pitch, we would do some research on different ideas, try to come up with things that we thought could fit. And they're really, that was hard, right? You like look at so many ideas and very few would fit those criteria. But then for the ones that you felt did, you could pitch them to the leadership of X and try to get internal support and resources to develop the idea further. So looking back, it was not a bad way to sort of start learning the basics of what I would need as an entrepreneur, because you're like doing all this research into potential concepts and then trying to pitch to those with resources why it was in their best interest to give them to you to pursue the concept, right? So it did have some of the same activities associated. Mm -hmm. So you you already have the framework of how you think of a problem and then how you you bring the team and investors to actually work on that that problem. So that's how X works. Did you start working on energy and geothermal back then? And was it already a project at X or is it some idea that wasn't uh, pursued at X that spinned out from it? Because usually the model of X is that you work on a product internally, like let's take Waymo, for instance, that you work on the development of the technology and then Google or Alphabet now spins out the company to Waymo, uh, that's the most famous one, but there are others that are coming in the pipeline as well. Could you help me walk through the journey for for Dundeline Energy? Sure. Well, it started when I actually like first learned about geothermal, which I had never heard of as <laughs> heating and cooling technology until a colleague at Google, not at X, but at Google, emailed like a large listserv of people interested in energy with a really passionate sort of op-ed almost about why he thought geothermal was such an amazing opportunity for the United States. So I read that and I, I was, I don't know, I guess I was intrigued that he had so many reasons that he thought this would be such a big deal. And I had never even heard of it, even though I was so focused and interested on energy. And so I started because it was my job to investigate new ideas and, you know, technologies and energy. I started looking into it. And over time, I just started to agree with a lot of what he said. And so I did end up pitching to the leadership at X, like I described, hey, like this could actually be an opportunity or there might be an opportunity in here in the what if we could do something to make geothermal more mainstream and actually sort of a more realistic way of doing heating and cooling for for a lot of buildings in the United States and got the resources to look into it. And so I started building the project that way. But pretty quickly, it sort of became clear that while there was a great business opportunity with geothermal and certainly a lot of impact potential, it didn't necessarily meet the criteria of being a great fit for X. And so it was a hard turning point for me because I liked my job at X, but I also was really committed. I mean, at that point, I just believed so strongly that there was a real opportunity here and it felt I felt like I just couldn't drop it. 
And so my co-founder, James, and I ended up pitching X leadership. Hey, like, this is a great opportunity, but it's not necessarily a great fit for X. Why don't you let us take it out as a startup? And we eventually did that. So we got their support and launched it as a standalone startup company. Okay, wait, wait. let's go back to this because that, that's very interesting, I think. So you you hear about geothermal, you do the, the research that you're doing on all the ideas you, you have at Google X. There's a decision that, uh, and we can go back later on that, why this is not a Google X idea necessarily, the role of technology and so on. And so at that point, there's disappointment, imagine. And how long does it take you to make the decision or, or actually decide with your co-founder that you want to pursue this opportunity? Because as you say, you're at Google X, it's a great position, this is a great role. You could have also you know, said, okay, well, moving on to the next idea. Mm-hmm. But you decided that you know this was an idea to push forward as a separate company. Was that an obvious decision or was there some... You know, a, a time of thinking with your co-founder and like, are we actually going after this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think you're right on point. It was not an easy decision for me at all. I would say on the one hand, I had at that point, like for a few years, been professionally looking for ideas and energy that seemed like they had a lot of promise. And so after having done that for that long, I was pretty convinced about how special this idea was. Like, I really felt like the impact could be so large. The time for it had come. It seemed doable. It was like a lot of the barriers holding back geothermal. It seemed like there could be a path, right? And so I was just like really intrigued by the opportunity. You know, I was not in the energy industry. I was, it's also, I think, a lot of ideas in energy they can be very intimidating because you have to like learn how to build a cement factory or, I mean, that might be a terrible example. I'm not sure. But like a lot of these ideas are very technical, very, very expensive infrastructure ideas. But this one didn't seem like it was. It like seemed like somebody like me who is a relative outsider, relative newcomer might be able to do something meaningful, which I think so many of us are looking for that. Like, how can I do something meaningful and make a contribution? So for all those reasons, I was very reluctant to move, just drop it and move on. But on the other hand, I'd never started a company. Like I had never even worked at a startup. I had no idea how to do that. And I like wasn't naive in the sense that I knew it would be really hard because I would say if there's one common theme (laughs) that you hear about from entrepreneurs. It's just like how hard that journey always is, it seems. And often, well, at least from my perspective back then, it seemed like even those entrepreneurs who go into it might have had more experience than me in things related to starting a company. And I just knew that it was very possible I would leave X to start this company and get nowhere and it would fail immediately. And then I would feel foolish. But I mean, at the end of the day, I think I also just realized like, I want to implement something. I have that interest. Like, I really like the idea of taking something and trying to do it. And what better opportunity would I ever have? Right. It's like, yeah, you couldn't get rid of the idea. Basically, it was there. You couldn't just leave it not happen without you. Yeah. If I want to implement something, 
I could just implement it, right? It was like, if I don't do this, it'll be out of fear. That's why. And I didn't want to make the decision out of fear. So Mm. I decided to do it. But like, it wasn't easy. And I was, I didn't decide to do it with like, pure excitement and joy. (laughs) I like decided to do it with a sense of excitement and dread. You know what I mean? It was more like that. Which is probably the most reasonable uh, approach to starting a, a new company. Um, <laughs> and how, at that stage, I mean, I understand the emotional concern and the, the risk that you're exposing yourself to. How good of an understanding of you know, building heat, heat pumps, the technology do you have at, at that moment? You probably did some research. And I don't know if you already you know, work with a prototype or, or actually touched the technology. I'm just trying to understand when you make a decision that, yes, you will start a company with your co-founder, how good of an understanding did you have of the the challenges of heat pump and the the technology itself? Well, my co-founder, James, was really the domain expert. He was actually a contractor. So he had built and run and sold actually his own home efficiency contracting company where he had a lot of experience selling and installing things like heat pumps in people's homes. I'm not sure if he did a lot of geothermal. I don't think so. But it's similar enough to other heat pump technologies that he was well positioned to understand it pretty well. And we were working with some collaborators who had very deep sort of expertise in geothermal systems. So I was really focused in the early days on figuring out things like raising money and go to market and business model and sales and marketing and, you know, like building up a contractor network and things like that. So a lot of the um, starting the business and implementation, whereas he was more focused on the technology. But of course, over time, I got to learn the technology, you know, very well, (laughs) because that's just what happens. But I think that we understood it enough to have at least a hypothesis to get started with for what we were going to try to do with the initial funds in order to prove out our idea. And I will start by saying like, we were wrong about some of it. And we didn't realize that until we were in the seed stage implementing. And then it sort of became clear some of our assumptions were not correct and some were, right? And I think that's pretty common. That's interesting that, that you were able to leverage your co-founder experience, you're kind of like complementary on the business side and then the more energy experience and technical side. And help us understand, you know, because you started this in 2017, right? Yes. Because everybody talks about heat pumps nowadays, but where were heat pumps in 2017? Where was the technology and what was the market perception of, of heat pumps back then? And, you know, essentially, what did you see when you were at Google X and then when you started actually a company that, you know, made you tick and say, there is an opportunity here in 2017. Right. Yes. I mean, no one was talking about heat pumps in 2017 and now it seems everyone is. And it's, it's like incredible to me what a huge difference it is in such a short amount of time. But what we like saw in 2017 or even before, I guess, when we were vetting the idea that made us think there was a real opportunity is when you just looked at where are carbon emissions coming from, buildings are, you know, I think it's between 20 and 30%. So a huge fraction of carbon emissions are coming from buildings. Most of that is 
heating and cooling. And those are point source emissions for the most part, especially on the heating side. So like cars, which are each car emitting its own carbon, right? Each furnace and each boiler is emitting a lot of carbon, especially in cold places. So when you look at that problem and you sort of start to understand what the alternatives are that aren't like, what are the alternatives to a furnace or a boiler that isn't going to be emitting carbon? Heat pumps are pretty much the only answer. So you, I think like anyone who anticipated we would need to get rid of emissions from heating would have to conclude heat pumps are going to be a big deal. And we were already starting to see in 2017 the shift towards electric vehicles, like that was well underway. So it just kind of seemed like this is coming for heat pumps. And it's probably the like most important thing we got right, just that that trend was going to happen. And it has, right? And it's been so important to this the progress we've made so far because we have so many people who are trying to help us succeed. Yes, now that that trend is a is a given almost, but you were so many years ahead of everyone understanding this. And so I think this is what's so interesting about the Nelayan Energy and, and your journey, right? How did you get to this conviction? Was it more, as you say, a qualitative understanding that electrification is happening, EVs are happening in the automotive industry, so it makes absolute sense that the same thing should happen in building heating? Or was there, let's say, more of a due diligence or an actual, you know, detailed understanding of if you look at the cost of a gas furnace, the cost of a, a heat pump, um, maybe other solutions, you know, hydrogen or other alternatives, it does make sense that electrification will win long term. Were you already at this level of detail? We did. Yeah, we did both. So we looked at, yeah, certainly electrification is coming as more of a high level hypothesis. And then we looked at the cost and also like really the ROI, like how much could a homeowner save by switching to a heat pump in various parts of the country. And it really differs dramatically, right? Because it's a function of what's the weather, what are they paying for heating fuel today? What heating fuel do they use? What's the price of electricity? What type of heat pump are they switching to? Like all of these things factor into how much savings or extra spend they will need in order to switch to a heat pump. And then we also did customer interviews. So towards sort of the end of our diligence process at X, we did a focus group with homeowners in New York, like describing what geothermal was, and then seeing what they thought about it. And that was fun for me. You literally get to sit behind a one-way mirror. (laughs) Like, I don't know, I'd never been part of a formal focus group. And people hadn't heard of it for the most part. Maybe there was one or two that had, but everyone was interested. It was like, to me, it was so clear that people wanted a solution. I should mention our earliest market is fuel oil users in the Northeast, which seems like a very niche market, but actually it's millions and millions and millions of homes. And I grew up in a fuel oil home in the Northeast, and so did many of my friends and relatives who I grew up with in New Hampshire. But Millions of people in New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New England, a lot of people still using fuel oil. And it's very expensive and it's very annoying. Not everyone has access to natural gas. And so I think we saw early on, here's a market full of people who have no choice, which is why they're using fuel oil. And if we could offer them an alternative 
especially one as attractive as geothermal that does heating and cooling and it's electric and they'd save money and like all these things. Why wouldn't they do it? Right. It just, it seemed like such a great value proposition for the customer. So we had all of those things, sort of the belief in the overall trend and understanding of cost and then some evidence that consumers actually were thinking about it like we thought they would. But a focus group is one thing. It's another thing to actually have to go and get people to spend real money on a geothermal heating system. So that was our first order of business once we raised seed funding was to actually like go to market and show that people would buy this if we gave them the the opportunity. Okay. So you know you have that market traction. When you leave Google X, you have that that first seed money to to build a small team uh, and build a prototype. How do you get to start this to you know make your first installation of heat pumps? And you know how do you do this from scratch basically? Given that you know you don't have necessarily the maybe your co-founder has the background on, on doing this, and maybe it might help before going into this if we we take a bit of time to explain how how a heat pump actually works, so that it might make more sense on how the the early prototype of Dandelion uh, looks like. Absolutely. So the way the geothermal heating and cooling system is installed and its components is you have to figure out how much heating and cooling the home needs in order to put the right size system in. Then you install what are called ground loops. And these are plastic pipes. They're an inch and a quarter in diameter, so not very wide but they extend 300 to 500 feet into the ground. So they quite deep, right? And a typical home will have one or two of them, but it's a function of the size of the home, or I should say the amount of heating and cooling it needs. So you have to install the ground loops, which typically involves using a drill, like a drilling rig, and bringing it to the yard to put, it, to put the loops in the ground. You connect the loops into the home and then remove the home's furnace or boiler and replace it with a geothermal heat pump that's connected to those loops. And this allows the heat pump to, in the winter, sort of pull heat from the ground and concentrate it so it's high temperature and then use it to warm your home. And in the summer, it can pull heat out of your home and then sort of like dissipate it into the ground using those ground loops, which is a very, very efficient process, which is why it's so cost-effective to heat our cool using geothermal. So that's what it entails. So in order to prototype this, we needed to figure out how are we going to market and sell this product? Then we had to have a way of just a plan for designing the right system for the home. And then obviously we needed somebody to drill the, the holes and put the ground loops in. And then we needed to identify who was going to install the heat pump and what heat pump we were going to use. And then on top of all of that, we knew that given what we've seen in the solar industry, we knew that a lot of homeowners were not going to want to pay up front for the entire cost of the project because geothermal installations are much more expensive up front than a furnace installation, but they're much less expensive to operate. So it kind of lends itself very nicely to having some sort of financing option so that you can amortize the upfront cost and pay for it over time, where your savings really offset that repayment so that you're saving money right away. Just like we've 
grown used to with with solar. So yeah, we had a lot to figure out. And I think at the beginning, so much of what we were trying to figure out was like, what is the right business model? And our initial hypothesis was we can partner with local companies to do the drilling and the heat pump installation. We decided we would just buy heat pumps off the shelf to start and to keep it simple. And then we um, partnered with a bank to provide the financing. So we were really like kind of coordinating all the parties, I would say, and trying to get the customers. So doing the customer acquisition. Okay. So it's really an aggregator role you had at the start. Yeah, it was. And our plan at the beginning was we wanted to eventually make the heat pumps and do the financing, but sort of outsource everything else. And it just became very clear very quickly that that was not a realistic place to start. Okay. Okay. So it's very clear in technology how you, you know, you basically collect the heat or collect the cold from the ground to bring it in the home. Uh, that's the basic principle. And you're working as a coordinator initially because it's, it would be too much effort to do the install, to the financing. That's so many capabilities you have to bring in from the start. Just before we go into more the, the product and the scaling of the company, you say you start in the Northeast. Is that because of a climate reason? Because the Northeast of the US is, is pretty cold and, and therefore there's a lot of uh, heating requirement in the winter? Or is there other reasons to start there? Yeah, we started in New York, in the Albany area specifically. And it was because it was cold, but also because there's so much fuel oil usage. So millions of homeowners paying exorbitant amounts for an inconvenient heating fuel. And the policies in New York were very favorable. So I think at that time they had the nation's leading geothermal incentives. So you homeowners could get money back from the state of New York for doing this. And that continues to be the case. New York leads the country in favorable policies for geothermal adoption. And then we decided on the Albany area because the contractor we partnered with at the beginning to do the installations was based there. And so it just made sense to locate where we had that partnership. So you have this plan. How does it look like at the beginning? I mean, imagine you face many major challenges in the first installs when you just you know, started with a new contractor, started with new bank financing this facility. What was maybe the biggest hardship you faced at this stage of the company? Yeah, it's hard to name just one. You're right. Like there were many hardships. Everything from, you know, there ended up being only one bank. We didn't realize how hard it would be to find a bank to provide these loans to our customers. And it came down to only one who was even a possibility. And that was very unclear until the last minute if they would actually work with us. And then thankfully, they decided they would. So yeah, there just really wasn't a market for geothermal loans at all. We also ended up selling more projects than we anticipated more quickly than we anticipated, which obviously is a good thing, except we just quickly overwhelmed our ability to install. And that was really challenging because we had, after selling too many of these projects, we sort of realized how much we had oversold our capacity. And we realized we had mispriced, we had underpriced the systems pretty significantly. So we kind of had to like, dig our way out of that mess, you know, which is really challenging. We also 
I think we realized it was really challenging to get the feedback we need. Like it was just hard to do all the work with so many parties involved without having the direct experience of doing the work ourselves, right? We were doing so much through subcontractors and partners. And so a lot of the feedback we would get would be secondhand about why a design was wrong or why a timeline was longer than we thought it should be or like any of the details, right? And so I think that first experience, it really validated that there was a market for this product, which was great. But it also showed us that we couldn't outsource everything. We, If we really wanted to solve this problem and make geothermal simple and scalable, we were going to have to do a lot more of the work ourselves and sort of insource some of the installation. And that was like a difficult truth <laughs> to, to understand for me because it's one thing to start a company. It's like a whole nother thing to realize you have to start essentially like a contracting company with warehouses and installers that have to have the right licenses and like a service team and like all the things we knew we needed to do at that point. But it kind of became clear if we want to solve the problem, this is kind of what we have to do. You need to own some part of the the value chain. And actually, if we jump forward a bit in time, I'm curious to understand how did your model, your business model evolved precisely based on that experience? Because we were in 2017, 2018, that's your first a few installs. That's where you're getting the learning on, on your current operating model. Since then, you know, you've raised, uh, I think, $30 million and you've grown significantly. So how is your current model different from that early model where you're mostly consolidating different players? Which part of value chain are you actually owning now that you make an install? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we basically, over the years, ended up vertically integrating much of the process. We still occasionally do use subcontractors, but most of our work is done in-house. And I do think that the vision remains the same, that like over time, as we continue to make progress, simplifying the installation and sort of building up the set of tools and products that are needed, we will be able to return to a model that has more subcontractors. And this is the pattern we saw in rooftop solar, where in the early days of that industry, a lot of the successful companies were more vertically integrated. But now that there's a lot more design software and a lot better, I don't know, like racking products and just like all of the details that make it easy to install solar nowadays have let a lot of local companies become very good at it. And so you have sort of technology providers and then you have installers. I think that same pattern will happen. We just need to build up the infrastructure. And so, yeah, so today we're mostly vertically integrated, which has allowed us to learn much more quickly and keep the customer experience really positive. And as we continue to build the tool sets and the technology, we probably will in the future have more subcontractors than we have today. Okay, so now you do own the installation network, Dandelion Energy employees that actually install heat pumps at your customer sites. Yes, mostly. Mostly, mostly. You're still not doing the financing, right? This, these are still banking partners. We're still working with a third-party bank, yep. And luckily today, there are a lot more third parties that want to work with us than at the beginning. So we've managed to bring the costs of that financing down 
we've cut it almost in half. So it's, there's been a lot of progress, but yeah, it's still done through third parties today. Okay. And it's very counterintuitive. I find that it is hard to find a financing partner, given that this is the same as a utility bill payments. So I imagine there's a very low failure rate on those loans, given that you, you have to pay for this loan to, to get heating systems. So what would the rationale in 2017, or maybe even today, for the banks to not necessarily be interested in financing these kind of assets? Is it because it's a, a new type of, of financing, or is there another reason behind this? I think there are a few reasons. So our bank that we partner with has told us that our loans perform better than, and like they're among the best performing loans of any that that bank does. And now they have the data to know that, right? So that's like really been one of the reasons that we've seen our rates come down so dramatically, but that data didn't exist in 2017. And we were a brand new company. So we'd been in business for zero years. And so that that alone sort of made it hard, I think, for us to have that credibility with banks. And then I do think, as you mentioned, people aren't familiar with geothermal heat pumps so there's not a template for like how to think about that product. And we've seen that change because I think a lot of the solar financing providers have become interested in expanding the product set. And they see how home electrification as a category is a great opportunity. And, and Geo fits really nicely into that and has all the properties you would want, like really long-lived systems that have low maintenance and great repayment rates, as you've mentioned. And yeah, so it's gotten a lot better. And so you're still doing the financing through a partner, you're doing the installation mostly through then the line energy employees in house. What about the technologies? Are you still buying technology from other partners? Or is this technology that has been developed by then energy internally? We have some of our own developed technology. And that includes like, we've really made a lot of progress on the design side. So we are able to design our systems with really high fidelity remotely. And then we have proprietary data that allow us to install the right amount of ground loop without over-installing. So what's typical in our industry is that people just put more than enough ground loop in so that you have enough heating and cooling and you don't, because you never know. It's like the thinking goes, you never know what you're going to find underground or exactly what the conditions will be like. So let's just plan for the worst case scenario so you're sure you have enough ground loop for a given home. We've just collected the data and analyzed it to have much higher confidence how much heating and cooling we'll get out of a certain size ground loop in a certain location. So we're able to get away with not oversizing ground loops, which ends up making the drilling a lot less expensive. And then we've also put quite a bit of thought into how we actually do that drilling. And for the heat pumps, we currently source them from a manufacturer. So we're not manufacturing heat pumps ourselves at the moment. Okay. So it's more the technology around the design, the dimensioning of the heat pump rather than the the components and the hardware themselves, which I, I understand from what you're saying are fairly standard pieces of equipment in the installation. Very clear. And so you've raised $30 million last year, I believe. You know, this podcast is called Scaling Climate Tech. So I'm very interested in how does this scale? You start in the Northeast. What is the ambition for Dendeline Energy and, you know, in the broader scheme of things for heat pumps? Is it 
that heat pumps will replace 100% of all existing building heating solutions. So whether it is fuel or natural gas, or is it more nuanced than that? And also, is there a difference between the regions in the US? You know, you've started in the Northeast, we're here in California today. Help me understand how does the you know, the 2030 or the 2040 view of building heating looks like? Is it 100% electrification or is it more complex than that? So I do think 100% of furnaces and boilers will be replaced with heat pumps. And I think this will happen sooner than we think it will. In the same way that it would have been hard to imagine 10 years ago how much progress electric vehicles would have already made by now. And I think a lot of our progress on electrification of all sorts is only accelerating. I don't think 100% of heat pump installations will be geothermal. I think it will be a mix of air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps. Ground source heat pumps is the same as geothermal heat pumps. And it's very region specific. As you said, there are some regions of the US that already have very high heat pump penetration. So the Southeast, for example, already has a lot of heat pumps because that region has lacked access to natural gas more than some other regions. And it's just a climate that's always been easier for heat pumps. So historically, a lot of have gone in there. But I think we'll see geothermal play an outsized role in very cold climates, as well as I think in new construction, because the benefit of geothermal over another type of heat pump over an air source heat pump is greatest in places that get very cold and very hot. So we'll see more of them in that type of extreme weather climate. And then I think new construction is a very good fit with geothermal because it's a relatively easy time to add the ground loop and you get the benefit for the entire life of that home. And so I think we'll just see it's a very customer friendly and sort of like, I don't know, we're already seeing a lot of interest from new builders when it comes to geothermal as an option for electrifying their new builds. Hmm. So in your view, it's 100% electrification, but there is a mix playing by what you're saying between geothermal, which I understand to be the most efficient solution, specifically for very cold areas like the Northeast, and air source heat pumps, which are more looking like ACs basically next to a window, which might be less efficient, but are easier to install or cheaper to install for, for some building. Is that a, a correct understanding? Yeah, so air source heat pumps are, some of them look like an air conditioner, like a central air conditioner, but they can do heating as well as cooling. They also, I don't know if you've heard of ductless mini splits, but they can look like sort of a cassette on the wall that's connected to a compressor outside. And they're easier to install because you don't need a ground loop. So you don't need a drill, which is, you know, of course, simpler. And they're still very efficient, right? Like they're a great solution for a lot of types of buildings, not as efficient as geothermal, especially when the weather is very hot or very cold. But I think that, you know, it, it just buildings vary from each other. And for some buildings, it will be relatively easy to put in a ground loop and totally worth it. For other buildings, you don't even have space for a ground loop. So you have to go air source, right? And it just, you know, the situation will be different depending on the specifics of the building. But I think overall, the more very hot or very cold weather you face and the higher your electricity prices, the more you're incentivized 
to put that ground loop in because Mm. that added efficiency will just be really valuable. If you live in a climate that's very mild, like, I don't know, San Francisco, air source heat pumps are great because it's never that hot or that cold. So they, they're very efficient. Mm. That makes absolute sense. And help me understand like the size of the challenge we have ahead of us to achieve this 100% electrification, whether ground source or air source heat pumps. How many buildings are we talking about that need to be either retrofitted or, or built with geothermal or air source embedded in them? And how far along are we in this journey of building electrification today? It's a monumental task. I mean, it's almost... I mean, how many buildings are there in the United States, right? It's There is some percentage that have heat pumps today, especially in places like the Southeast, but it's by far the minority, right? And so I think it's a similar scale of challenge to electrifying every vehicle. It's just there's so many individual furnaces or boilers that will need to be replaced. And in, in a lot of ways, it's going to be harder than the electric vehicle challenge because at least with electric vehicles, there's not quite as much diversity. Like you don't have to worry about the building envelope or like the specifics of a building. But I think the good news is the products that with heat pumps, there's definitely improvement to be made, but it's already pretty good, right? Like we're already converting a lot of homes to heat pumps all the time in this country. And, you know, most of those homeowners are saving money. And so the economic incentives of the homeowner are often aligned with the environmental incentives, which is good. We're like in a good position in that sense. And that just got a lot better with the Inflation Reduction Act, which sweetened the deal considerably for homeowners to switch to heat pumps. So I think while the task is gargantuan, we're well set up to take it on. And I'm an optimist, so that's how I feel. But I do think that the more homes that switch to heat pumps, sort of the the more momentum the industry will have and the more resources and like the easier it will be to get the next batch of homes converted. Absolutely. I like the optimism. And and just for context, the Inflation Reduction Act is this massive climate bill that just passed in the US, 400 billion dedicated to climate and out of which a significant share goes to subsidies to reduce the cost specifically of heat pumps. So that is making them even more attractive from a, a cost competitiveness perspective. So you mentioned the technology is there, the the incentives are there from an economic perspective. So is everything aligned for heat pumps to take off or is there still obstacles to really make sure we're achieving 100% electrification or is it just that we need it to happen and it will take time to happen but you know all the building blocks are here today. I think the building blocks are there and I don't think that the technology is solved like it's enough for many homes, it's not enough for all homes, but I think it's at a point where it's good enough that we can like really make substantial progress and sort of build from here. There's still so many obstacles though. I mean, just to name one, permitting, right? Like every single town has its own permitting requirements when it comes to heat pumps. And often those requirements are much more difficult than getting a new furnace or boiler. And that's a real problem because a lot of homeowners choose to replace their heating system when their existing one breaks. So they don't have time to wait a month or two to get permits. So it's like such a small thing, but that alone prevents such a large number of homeowners 
who otherwise would want to switch to a heat pump from switching. And like, how do you get thousands of towns to change their permitting requirements? It's not a straightforward problem. And I think there's just like a lot of little things like that where status quo is hard to overcome, right? Like every, everything is built to make it relatively cheap and simple to get a furnace replaced with a furnace. And it's not as simple to replace a furnace with a heat pump. And, and we're going to have to change that in order to see the outcome that everyone wants, which is the electrification of heating. So you've been building this company for five years now, Kathy. It's a very complex company from a hardware perspective, from an installation perspective, from a market perspective, even though things are getting much better now with the RAA. Can you help us, as far as you're comfortable sharing numbers, understand how this company has scaled and how it might scale in the coming years? Again, as far as you're comfortable, whether that is in number of installs or, or in revenues or whichever metrics make sense for you, understand how Dendel Energies has really grown in the, the last years and, and you know how much of the market for heat pumps could it really capture to to drive this electrification forward? Yeah, we're growing really quickly. So this year we'll do two to three times the number of installations, the, number, the amount of revenue we did last year. And that should happen again the following year. And we're really, we again have the same problem we had at the very beginning, which is we have a large backlog of customers who really want to get geothermal. And we're just trying to hire our installation team as quickly as we can to meet that demand. So that's a lot of our focus today is just scaling up to meet the demand, which should only increase given the recent policy changes from the IRA. And we've also, you know, it's like as we scale, we're really making progress on simplifying the installation. Over time, our installations have gotten more streamlined, simpler. Our drilling data has gotten better. Our drilling processes and sort of the equipment we use and like that whole part of the install has gotten so much better, like almost unrecognizable from when we were a few years ago. The loans are half the cost. Customer acquisition costs is a third of what it once was. It's really rewarding in that sense to see us really make progress, right? On achieving our mission to make geothermal much more scalable than it's ever been. We still have a lot of work to do though. I mean, we want to really make this sort of a default option for new builders. We want to increase the number and sort of type of financing options so that we have products more like a solar lease, right? That homeowners can use to to pay for their systems. We do see a lot more opportunity to make the technology better. And yeah, and like all of those changes will only help increase the momentum and sort of allow us to scale more quickly. It's pretty exciting. And maybe a personal question for me, all of those installs are mostly homeowners. Is there a way to extend this to tenants that actually don't own a home? I live, you know, in, in San Francisco where there is a gas boiler. I am not owning this apartment and I'm unable to make those changes and the incentives are not aligned between the, the homeowner and the, the tenants. I don't know if this is something you're looking at in terms of probably financing option. Yeah. But I, I wish there was a system that, that enable uh, tenants and, and, and homeowners to actually have a, a line incentive there. 
Well, I think that's why a product like a lease product is so useful. I mean, not the only reason, but certainly one of the good things that could come from it. If you have the option for the system to be owned by a third party. So if the landlord didn't need to be the one to buy the system, but it could be installed by a third party and then charged to you as the renter monthly, let's say. That might be perfectly fine with you as long as your total monthly utility expenses were lower than they'd been before, right? So it can really align the incentives by not requiring the owner to pay more up front, but still allowing the renter to save. And we don't have any financial products, financing products in geothermal today that really allow for that. So that's one of the reasons why yeah, we're so interested in sort of increasing the the choice set of financing products because it will let us align the incentives for landlords and renters or new construction builders and home buyers. You know, a lot of these situations where the incentives aren't necessarily aligned today. Absolutely. Let me know whenever the product comes out, I'll be the, the first user. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I absolutely will. <laughs> Maybe one last question. If you could Go back to Kathy in 2016, meet Kathy in 2016 or 2017. What would you tell yourself back then, based on all the experience you've had so far with Dandelion Energy over the last uh, five, six years? Oh, that's a hard question. I think certainly this is such a cliche, but I think I would tell myself to trust my instincts, right? I, there is a lot of self doubt. <laughs> there still is, but like it's easy for me to feel like. I don't, maybe I feel like I shouldn't hire this person or that this way of doing it just doesn't seem quite right or like whatever it is. But my tendency, I would say, is to trust the quote unquote expert or the quote unquote person in a position of domain expertise to make the call. And I think over time, I've become much more, I don't know, just I've really seen the value of understanding things yourself and sort of paying attention to those red flags and like mm -hmm. taking the time to make sure that yeah that you understand and are not taking someone else's word for it that just always has been worth it so i would try to tell myself to do that and to trust my instincts i think i would also have spent more time myself sort of embedded in the industry of geothermal so like go visit companies doing geothermal, go to more geothermal installations, like really understand as much as I could about how it was being done, not just locally, but like all around the world. One of the things we've done, we did last year was we took a trip to Sweden, which is a country where 25% of homes have geothermal installations and learned a lot about what they do. And like, imported a lot of what we learned and applied it directly to our business, which has been hugely helpful. And why did it take us until last year to do that? Like I could have gone to Sweden back in 2016 and saved myself a lot of time and a lot of energy. And so I would say I undervalued that, like really looking outside and just going to see, you know, meet people, see things like get involved directly instead of doing a lot of internet research. I mean, it's certainly easier to sit at your computer and do the research, but not always. I feel like the trip to Sweden should be mandatory for any first climate founder. 
There's so many, <laughs> so many leading uh, topics there. Yeah. Hmm. I think that's true. I mean, and it's like the cost of going to Europe, which is far ahead of us in a lot of different sectors of climate, but like the cost of going and seeing what's been tried and what's happening and what the lessons learned are over there and just like all those things is so low compared to like all the costs of starting a company. So yeah, I totally agree. Just um, trying to figure out who has tried a similar thing or who is doing a similar thing and how can I get myself invited to go see what's going on and like really experiencing it. So yeah, I would have given myself that advice. What's one great resource you found that you could share with our listeners on heat pumps or, or building decarbonization to get introduced to this topic? I would say that the nonprofit Rewiring America has done a lot of really good work on building decarbonization and heat pumps. And there's a lot of resources available through them that could be worth looking into. And now, I mean, there's a lot more in the press these days. There's a lot more just in general out there about heat pumps. So it's definitely easier than it's ever been to learn about them. Okay. Well, we'll definitely put the show notes, the paper or pages on Rewire America, specific to heat pumps. Keithy, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. I really like your optimism and the vision and the way you're driving this at the Lion Energy to have electrification of building and uh, wish you the best for the coming years on the Lion. Thank you, Florian. Thanks for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Congratulations, you finished this episode. Thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you liked it, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. This is really helpful to be more visible in the rankings and to be able to keep inviting the best of climate tech entrepreneurs in this show. Thank you so much. And I'll catch you on our next episode very soon.